Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Eleanor spoke with Alexa von Hirschberg, who is a senior commissioning editor at Bloomsbury Publishing. I went to see Alexa at her beautiful offices on Bloomsbury Square. Uh, Alexa talked about editing Raniedo Lodge and Kate Tempest and what it was like to meet uh, Margaret Atwood for the first time. It's a really great episode and we hope you enjoy it. So I uh, am here at Bloomsbury Publishing with the Senior Commissioning Editor of Bloomsbury Publishing, Alexa von Hirschberg. Hello, Alexa. Hello. Uh, thank you very much for talking to me today. Um, so I think we'll start off with how you became, edit- I think it's editorial assistant here in 2008. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got that job? And Sure. So I um, started sort of my foray into publishing a few years earlier than that, I was working in a in a pub after uni and in a bike shop, um, and I was doing an editorial and proofreading course at the London School of Publishing. And at the pub, I met uh, a, a somebody in publishing, and I got talking to him. Who was this in particular? <laughs> this was Patrick Jansen Smith, okay. who many people will know. Very brilliant editor and at the time he was an agent and he he told me a little bit you know I he actually that what happened was he was reading a manuscript and I knew that it was a manuscript because I was doing a course in editing and at six o'clock we turned the lights down and so I sort of brought him lots of candles and said oh well, you're going to need these candles if you're going to read and struck up a conversation with him and he gave me some advice and um his wife, Anne-Louise Fisher, who ran a scouting company, Anne-Louise Fisher Associates at the time, uh, she's needing an intern for the London Book Fair. So that was my sort of way in, in a way. So how old are you at that time? Oh, uh, 23. So you just graduated? From well, no, I graduated a few years before, but I'd worked um, in different things. I, you know, uh, I actually worked for Camilla Batman Gellage at Kids Company for a few months. Um, and I was trying things out. But it became clear to me that I wanted to be in in this in you know, in, in in the editorial industry or in, in I, I looked for jobs in journalism for a while. I applied for various jobs in publishing. I didn't really know anyone mm. in London. I grew up in in North Yorkshire. I didn't really know anyone, um, so it wasn't. It was, and I I kind of didn't hadn't quite worked out the sort of intern. I had, didn't know anyone to get me an internship, <laughs> so I had to hang around pubs until I could find someone. Um, so yeah, so I did that for a bit and then was lucky enough to get an internship with Anne-Louise Fisher. And then through Anne-Louise... At the book fair? So it would, no, well it was at her company. Oh, I see. Scout, right. It's a scouting company. Oh, I see, yeah. Um, and I worked there as an intern with her and Catherine Eccles, who okay. now runs that scouting company. And through that, it was an amazing insight actually into the industry. It was a really wonderful, I think often when people think about getting into publishing, they don't necessarily think about going, you know, getting involved in scouting. Mm. And um, for people who don't know what that is, it's uh, they are uh, paid by foreign publishers to scout the UK book industry, book industry, and they provide a report every week on the hot books, um, you know, and what's going on in, this, in the in the publishing scene. So it's a really wonderful overview. Mm. You get a sense of who everyone is, who the editors are, and obviously who the foreign publishers are as well, and what they want. So is that quite? Um a good idea for for young people wanting to go into publishing then is to actually start as a as a scouting company. Well, I think it's a it's a good thing to um, to you know. I, I, thinking back to that time, all I wanted was just a way in. Mm. I I didn't know how to sort of penetrate that that sort of wall, if, and that's what it feels like. It's so so mystifying. Especially if you're outside of London, I think there's a huge problem with people not being mm. able to get internships if you don't live here and. Thankfully, they are cracking down on unpaid yeah, ones now. Yeah, I mean, we all know that London, that, that, that publishing is a huge problem with all these issues, and particularly from, you know, from a class and, and race perspective. But but absolutely, you know, I and I, you know, you know, I, I, I'm a very privileged person in lots of ways, uh, and even even I found it difficult. Yeah. So I can't imagine what it must be like for someone else. Do you find that a lot, I don't know if you do work experience or if you offer internships here at Bloomsbury, but do you find yeah. that it's often not very diverse in terms of the people that are applying? Um, 
I'm quite removed from that process now. Mm. But yeah, looking around, mm. it is. But there are, we have, we, we are, you know, we like everybody else in the industry are cracking down on that. It's very important to, to be questioning the decisions that we make and who we're bringing in. That's but often actually the people that are applying are all from, you know, are very privileged anyway, so it's often not that people aren't uh, giving people a chance, it's just that not many people are applying anymore from underprivileged backgrounds, which is, so I suppose the root issue has yeah. got to be tackled way before the, oh, the yeah. application process. Absolutely. Yeah. This, this, the industry, it's going to be good for absolutely everyone if, we, yeah. if people from all different backgrounds, all different, from all different aspects of society want to come and work mm. in this industry. You know, we need to be getting the best talent, and the only way we're going to do that is by is by diversifying. How aware were you of publishing as an industry as a career possibility for you when you were growing up at school, and then when you went on to Kings? I had no idea. Really, really. I mean, you know, I was interested in books. I was my parent, my mum was an English teacher. Um, my stepdad was an English teacher, and so I, you know, I'd look at penguin you know look at the look at the imprint page and sort of wonder but I, I i wasn't i wasn't particularly aware of how it all how it all worked the breakthrough from that point of view came with i had a, a, an aunt in new york who had worked in publishing as a as a um in her early 20s in fact she worked for double day for kate medina who kate medina's very brilliant editor still working in New York she worked for her when she was in her early 20s and found it awful <laughs> why did she find it awful oh, for all the reasons you can you know I'm sure many people have talked to you about it's particularly then I think there's very much the sort of devil wears Prada yeah yeah uh, aspect of things where you're uh, sort of slave absolutely <laughs> and so and, and but also on your your CV, so you were a music promoter and festival curator oh. as well before before you joined Bloomsbury. What was there a career? So, and so you, and you went to Canongate as well. Yes, I oh God, I didn't even talk talk about that. Yes, I went to Canongate. So from yes, from from, from Anne Louise, um, I got a job at Canongate, which was an amazing first job. Yeah. It was absolute dream first job, and in fact, at the time, um, I didn't really realise that they had a London office. It was based in Edinburgh. It's based out of Edinburgh. Oh. Um, but Jamie Bing, who runs Canongate, um, had set up, was starting to set up a London office, which was at the time in his basement. And there were six of us in the basement in London, and it was the best, most exciting time because. What was your title there? I was. Uh, what was my t- my actual title? I think I was assistant to the publisher. So I was Jamie Bing's assistant. Okay. So what were your day to day duties there? Um, oh God. I mean, if you've ever worked for a, a small company, well, it's you know it's a much bigger company now. But at the time, there was, as I said, there was no real infrastructure. Yeah. We were in Jamie's basement, so I was I I was sort of I think I overhauled the IT systems at one point. Um, went to the post office a lot. <laughs> Always the way. Um, was reading manuscripts, supporting supporting Jamie administratively. Um, you know, there was a lot of of paying of parking fines and you know yeah. there's I mean it, it, it frying peppers for parties uh washing up I mean all sorts of things I was an assistant I was the dog's body but it was a wonderful environment because I heard every conversation that was happening I mean Gil Scott Heron used to call all the time um because Jamie and he and he were very close and um they were publishing or wanted to publish his books and had published his, his books before and so he'd call up and have a chat with me I mean what an amazing, amazing way to start the day what was some of the best advice uh, or the conversations that you eavesdropped at that <laughs> if you, anyone who has met Jamie or knows Jamie knows that he is an extraordinary um, publisher mm. I overheard him you know, talk to agents. I overheard him offer for books. He'd often speak on loudspeaker, which was irritating when you're trying to get work done, but actually incredibly useful. Um, so all sorts of things. And also I was very near to, at the time, Polly Collingwood, she was running the rights department. Um, and so I'd, I'd hear her have conversations with 
you know, foreign publishers and scouts, you know, and talk to people about. So it's a very complex sort of industry with lots of different very intimate relationships happening on all sorts of levels. Mm. And so when you're in the thick of it, you learn a huge amount. And how many years were you there? I was there for, I think, 18 months. Okay. So not very long. And you mentioned earlier that you did an editing course. Why did you think that you needed to do that and would you recommend it to other... um, starters in the industry I do think it's very, I think it's very useful so it's a it's a it's a sort of I think it's an eight-week course um, what was the name of the course it was editing editing and proofreading okay for publishing I can't remember exactly the title but it was it's and, a and where was it the London School of oh, Publishing okay yeah and it it gives you an it, you know a very brief introduction to all sorts of aspects of the editing process so from looking at a manuscript for how you mark up a manuscript so the um, the proofreading copy copy editing marks that you make on the page so useful practical skills but also how it how legal how legal a legal read works um, so it gives you very basic info and I, th- I think knowledge is always useful you know there's never a time when you, you regret learning you know an aspect of the industry that you wish to become mm. a part of that's always going to be useful was it an expert you had to pay for the course you did i did yeah i i it was it was expensive like but i i was working you know i was working in uh i was working in a bike shop and in a pub and i'd, I'd saved a bit of money from when i worked at kids company so you know i managed to yeah pay for that and it was and it was useful mm. So if it's, it's only eight weeks, so it doesn't exactly. take too long. So, exactly. And is that something, I don't know how involved you are with the hiring process at Bloomsbury now, but do you ever look for particular qualifications when you're when you're hiring, such as editing skills like that? I would say it would <clears throat> it would be an, the fact that someone's taken the initiative mm-hmm. to educate themselves would be a factor, but it's sure it's not the only factor. I mean, when you're looking for somebody... You look for all sorts of different things, but I do think that somebody who's who, in general, who's taken an initiative to 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 put themselves through a course is 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 great. Or people who people who set up a, set up a podcast, or people who uh, you know engage. I think yeah. what we're all looking for is people who are engaged. Have a Goodreads profile and uh, <laughs> to be honest, uh, yeah, I mean Goodreads. I, I'm I'm a bit I'm a bit. I mean I. Uh, I've got a profile, but I don't use it all that often. But no, yeah, I used it twice, and then. <laughs> but some people do really put every week their new yeah. book. It's amazing that they have the time. Um, and and you studied uh, English at King's, um, but do you, when you're looking at new people to to start here, would you say a degree was essential, especially a literature degree, to sort of? I think a degree now would would be essential I um although it would depend on the candidate and the role um in terms of what the degree is no I don't think literature is essential okay um not necessarily I think there, there are a few people here who did languages who did history um I suppose that is still studying mm. literature to some degree mm. I mean we had a she's isn't she no longer works here but she she did maths and philosophy so I you know I I think it's very very much a sort of uh, uh, it depends on the person Mm. and what they bring to the table you know if you had everybody who did a who did English literature and language at King's or at a London University it'd be a very tedious environment we'd Mm, all learnt the same things and studied with the same teachers and you know, that would be be quite would be uh, poor, all the poorer for that yeah. for that sort of streamlined approach. So, Alexa, tell me a little bit more about your job as editor assistant at Bloomsbury. So, how old were you when you got that job? I think I was twenty four. Okay. And did you apply for it? Yes, I applied for it. Um, I did. I'd, I'd heard that they were looking through a colleague at Canongate okay. and I thought it would be a really good time to actually, you know, I'd been, I'd been working in a, in, a, in a wonderful company but it, was, it wasn't very editorial focused and I, and I thought I could really use some focus now. 
And, and did you choose Bloomsbury specifically because you like the publishing house, or oh. was it just kind of any publishing? It really suited me. I, I, at the end, of the, the fact that Bloomsbury's independent appealed to me. Um, and why was that specifically? I'd learnt, you know, that working in a small company, you you have access to the bosses, mm. and I and it wasn't just it wasn't just that the access it was, it was the people who I'd be working for, Alexandra Pringle and Michael Fishwick. I was working for both of them when I started, and both in their fields was sort of brilliant editors um, and publishers. And I thought, gosh, this could be really useful learning experience for me. And also, I didn't really know that much about the industry at the time. You know, I I knew about the corporates and and the certain various imprints, and I was starting to learn that. But I I hadn't I hadn't fully kind of understood the the depth and complexity of the industry. So I wasn't I don't know if I was best placed to to really make a choice. You know, I think these jobs come up they come up more often now, but at the time they weren't coming up very often. Um, so I, I I just I just jumped at it. Where's the best place to, to, to find them now? Bookseller? Bookseller. There are various there are various places. There's um oh, what is it called? Creative Start. Is it Creative Start? Um the website. I mean all the publishers' websites they'll have mm. they'll have job um job opportunities. But also I think Twitter's a really great place. Yeah. Um if you follow lots of publishers on, on Twitter, you can often they'll post jobs. And so you can you, if you if you Pay close attention there. And is this sort of a Twitter account aggregates aggregates all the different jobs? I know there is for journalism. Yeah. There's jobs in publishing. Oh, okay. Yeah. And the, sure, and the bookseller jobs right. too. Yeah. Those are really good ones. So tell me a little bit about your duties as an editorial assistant and how, where were you in the pecking order at that point? Oh, I was the lowest of the low, yeah. I was. Were there interns? They were, we didn't have interns so much then. Oh. Maybe one or two. Um, there was there was there was four assistants working with the edit with the editors. Um, we and all of us, I think, we had each assistant had two editors. I and I was working with Michael Fishwick, who's nonfiction. You know, Willie Dalrymple and um, um, Ben McIntyre um, and Alexandra Pringle, Richard Ford and Colin McCann. So Margaret Atwood. So it was a really exciting range. I think that's what really appealed to me about the job because it was a really classy non-fiction and incredibly classy fiction. I thought this would be this would be exciting. Were you interested more in fiction or non-fiction at that point, or anything? I was sort of interested in everything and anything. I, would, I mean, I'd studied I'd studied a lot of fiction yeah. for the for the for the prior three years. So I um, I was more interested in fiction, but I. Was it was great to do both? I think I think at that stage in your in your career you're you're just hungry. You're hungry for for anything, and and you want to learn and you want to learn from the best and you want to um, see how all these different things, all different aspects of the industry operates. Uh, it's just a, it's it, you have there's so much to learn when you first start. Did you ever make any huge mistakes? <laughs> there are typos that happened on jackets. Um, that were my, were my responsibility, so that was a shame. I once I th- did I book some flights that were the wrong for the wrong date. There were lots of kind of yeah. admin assistant errors that happened. Um, nothing devastating. Still, though, it's crushing in your first <laughs> year in your new job. We've all been there. Yeah. Um, okay, and and so then you had this sort of astonishing string of promotions in I think it was seven years you went from assistant editor to editor well from editorial assistant to assistant editor to editor to commissioning editor senior commissioning editor is that unusual to be to progress so quickly uh well I'm now 35 um so I I don't know if it's quick actually I I think it's probably happened at about the right speed okay um, but it, I think it is unusual for it to happen within a company. I think that is unusual um, from from what I've witnessed. Uh, so I've I've been at Bloomsbury, you know, for t- ten and a half years now. Um, Are you one of the long, longest running Bloomsbury editors at the moment, or I am. Michael and Alexandra are still here. 
uh, Richard Atkinson. So there are people who who still who still been here longer, but you know people are leaving all the time. So it just mm. you know the old guard is uh, kind of falling away. But that does happen, and it's natural and it's good. Did you consider um, moving elsewhere and doing you know moving up elsewhere and coming back? Why did you decide to stay? That's a good question. I think I think you have to just judge it for for yourself. For me, there were opportunities to move, and I had conversations, but nothing felt right for me at the time. I I've been really lucky to work with people who have championed me and had faith in me, and that's been that you know that's a really incredible gift to give to to give to someone. And I suppose people generally move because they're not getting the promotion they want. Yeah in-house so I suppose if you were exactly that's it yeah I think yeah I was I was I keep saying I I always think I was so lucky but actually I've got to stop doing that because women do that all the time I I worked really hard and I kicked ass and so I got a promotion (laughs) I deserved (laughs) and were there promotions that were you know someone above you had left or did they create the role for you or so the first time when I first started commissioning, they sort of created the role for me. Um, yeah, I'd 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 sort of, I'd created a couple of books, sort of out of nowhere, and and they'd done all right, and I think they knew that that would be a good thing for me to do. And there was no one really buying kind of younger voices. It was there was there was a need and a hunger for kind of you know more dynamic writers and people from different backgrounds, and it was you know, so I I stepped into that role while I was being a managing editor so while I was looking after Alexander so Pringles the role. yeah the, <laughs> the, 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 the interesting thing that for me is that for me it's happened quite organically and actually I forget the different role titles that I've had um, because I was essentially a, an assistant working for two people and assist, then an assistant just working for Alexandra Pringle then I became a managing editor mm. so the managing editor is sometimes called a desk editor and they uh, essentially handle the the copy editing process the proofreading process and they liaise with production to make sure that that book is on schedule and you know it delivers to the to the production team on time so they can get it printed on time so it gives you a really wonderful insight into uh a sort of essential insight into into the process um but at the time I was doing that managing editing process I was also building my own list so if you were just able to kind of briefly go over how your role changed throughout the years so we get an idea of the different responsibilities you had at each time so obviously as editorial assistant you were doing lots of admin yeah. and then assist, and then you were assistant editor yeah and okay so editorial assistants tend to do a lot more admin so it's mm-hmm. it's implementing into the system it's it's um from in my in my case it was um you know a lot of booking flights you know organizing frankfurt schedules organizing london book fair schedules it's it's quite admin heavy uh, but also you're writing copy and you're um and you're you're looking over the cover with you with the commissioning editor and suggesting ways to improve it you're thinking of people to send quotes you know to send uh, the book out to for quotes early copies um so do you work with an editorial assistant at the moment i do yeah i do yeah, it's. I think it's really important to have mm. somebody to bounce ideas off, and mm. um, and yeah, the, the the assistants are are brilliant, and they bring a, bring a completely different perspective to what you're doing. You can sometimes get stuck in your ways, so it's good to shake things up a bit. And so then, from then on, how did everything change in terms of what you were doing? So then, when 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 I became an assistant editor, there was somebody else who was doing the doing the more. Um, administrative administrative side so I was free to think a lot more about the actual publishing process so liaising with sales and marketing and publicity mm-hmm. and becoming a champion for those for those books sort of on behalf of my bosses who weren't always able to to do that and also I was doing more editing so more hands-on editing uh, doing my own notes for authors and and you know being that person who the author comes to because they know that you know the big bosses might be might be busy or in meetings or doing whatever they were doing. Do you remember meeting some of your favourite authors at that point? When did you first meet? Did you meet Margaret Atwood? Uh, I have met Margaret Atwood. I couldn't talk to her. Really? <laughs> <laughs> also, I, I, for, I also wrote some copy for one of her books, which she 
tore into with ferocious insight. What did she say? Oh, she just said, this is appalling and on every level. To um, your face? No, said. not to my face. Right. No, no. We, we, we like to hide behind emails. You know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> although I'm sure she would have said it to my face had she been there. It was, it was, it was gutting. But she was right. It was terrible copy. What book was this for? It was for the Year of the Flood. Right. Why, the Oryx and Crate trilogy. Why was it so terrible? It didn't mention the main characters. Right. That is a pretty yeah. Idea. I think I was trying to be too clever. Yes, you don't want to point out the obvious uh, to Margaret Atwood. I think there is a tendency, to, especially with with um, yeah. with authors that you revere, that you try and you try and overthink it. And actually, the function of, of good jacket copy is really simply to explain what the book is in, in a way that it, it you know communicates what that book is trying to say, and it's not an opportunity for you to dazzle with your electrifying sentences. <laughs> How did you redeem yourself from this awful moment? I took on board her feedback and made it better, and then it was fine. And, she, and the second yeah. draft is okay? Yeah. And you met her after that? Uh, I can't really remember. I, I My involvement with her has been very much from a, you know, it's, I, I don't, I don't sort of, get involved mm. with her from in that very personal way so I'd see her at an event and yeah. I'd go up and say hello or, or you know avoid her because I'm too scared of you know whatever <laughs> it might be um but there are lots of there I think I think the author side of things is is really great because there are certain people there are certain authors that you get on with really well and that's a, because you just happen to connect who do you get on well with in particular oh there's I, I'd like to think that I get on well with 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 with, well, at the time, I, f- I like to think I got along with all of them. Yeah. Um, my authors, I, I like to think I got along very well because we're working hard together. Um, and so, who are you working with at the moment? Well, I work with Kate Tempest. Great. So, I publish her fiction and I've just met her to talk through her second novel. Her first, The Bricks That Built the Houses, did really well. I was incredibly impressed with what she did um, Melissa Harrison who I just think is one of the finest writers in Britain right now we've just published her latest novel All Among the Barley um, and her previous book at Hawthorne Time was shortlisted for the Costa and longlisted for the Baileys and so I'm very much hoping for more prize nods with this exceptional book uh, Renée Edo Lodge on the non-fiction side a very exciting time to work with her in particular. Her book was amazing. Mm. I'm no longer talking to white people about mm. race. Did you did you predict the impact that that would have? I don't think you can predict no. that kind of level of it. I definitely thought this is somebody who could lead the charge. Um, and and I, and when she came to see me, I said, "Why are you writing this?" And she said, "I want to be able to give people a book." That just explains what all the things I'm feeling. So then, you know, once they've read it, then we can have a conversation. You know, mm. there's so much that we don't understand. I thought, God, yeah, you know, we could all do it with a handbook. You know, mm. and and so I thought this this actually has a function. I think a lot of people are too scared to just say they don't understand when it comes to race, or too scared to ask people of colour to explain something to them. And I think that is good and breaking mm. down the barriers and mm. Mm. and also not blaming people for not knowing as long as they're willing to learn and understand it was very interesting that when when I circulated the proposal in the editorial meeting it was a completely silent meeting in that normally our editorial meetings well the the way it works is is that the editors circulate a proposal and the people who attend the meetings are representatives from sales and marketing and publicity and rights and fellow editors and we get together and we discuss the merits or not of that proposal and normally it's quite feisty you know this the marketing team say how am I going to market this and the editors say god this is a work of genius can't you see that and then you know we have a big debate but with this when I said okay so let's talk about about this and there was just silence do you think people are too scared to engage I think it I think it was it was that moment where 
it was profound. I think it was it was th- this is profound. This is a profound. What she's saying is is important, and I and I think there was an element of, of being ashamed because right. we look around the room. Was everyone ninety eight percent of the people were white? And I suppose if you're, I don't know how in that meeting are people normally quite vocal about what they dislike or they think should change. Yeah. So was it also a sense that they just didn't feel that they had any credentials with which to comment on a, such a book? I think that was a, that was a part of it. Yeah. But most actually, once the conversation got going, I, 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 everyone said, "This is a voice we need." Yeah. It was. It was very. It was a universal. You know, this we have to do this. Uh, but, but I think as an editor, I look for those those points of tension. Mm. I remember when. Alexandra brought Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother by Amy Chua to the to the table, which is a really brilliant memoir about raising your children, uh, what you call the chi- sort of Chinese parenting style. Mm. Um, uh, but it really, I think it's really about immigration, um, being an immigrant, and but but uh, but it but it's a it, it, it's quite a bold. It's, it, it's very bold, and what she the way that she she talks about raising kids, and you know every you have to get an A every, and you know, all the medals have to be gold and there's there's no room for being inferior or getting B's and and really there was a huge argument and we talked about it for ages and, and then Alexandra said well this is obviously if this if this is doing that to us what could it do in the wider world so I think you're always looking for those 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 ideas that, that really challenge people and with Renée Edo Lodge's book because I know she wrote some chapters as a blog first and then she made it into a book had you were you aware of the blog how did you become how did that relationship start with her she had written a blog which i had not read but had had gone viral yeah and her her agent at the time rupert heath had seen the blog and asked her to put together a proposal and it was called were you aware of, of her name at that point? no no i wasn't but she had been, she had done, she'd done Radio 4 yeah. and she'd done Sky, Sky Art, Sky News. Um, so she was very, very much at the sort of beginning stages of her career, although she'd worked in journalism for quite a long time. Mm. And I, so I just, I, I first heard of her when I got the proposal. What did you think of the proposal? I thought it was brilliant. It needed work. She'd never written long form before. But she had the right voice and the right tone. And she was angry, but she was insightful. And she could condense these very difficult ideas or very difficult feelings into, you know, into very pithy, um, easy to understand sentences. And so much so that I actually think now the readership for this book is, you know, there are 13, 14 year olds reading this book as well as 94 year olds, you know, it's, it's mm. got that, I think that's quite rare. Um, I think a lot of discussions about race, you know, lots of books about race tend to be quite academic and no one's really saying, oh, well, at the time it was difficult to find um, very clear analysis of, of, of what white privilege is and what it means and what that and what that feels like and let's look at the facts let's go back to basics because really the ideas aren't new but the way she tells it is new yes she's yeah you learn a lot about the history and it is very factually driven but it is deeply personal and how how did you feel editing a book that is so personal and from the perspective of a black woman as a white woman yourself, mm. how, were you, how confident did you feel to edit some of that? Well, I think you can look at structure. I think you can look at uh, the way the ideas are developing, and you can, you know, you, you, can, you can you can read for sense, and you can read for all sorts of things um, that are sort of technical. And there were times when I didn't feel comfortable. I mean, it's not that it's not that personal actually. The book, mm. um, I think she she quite rightly sort of steers away from some more personal aspects of things but but I was very very lucky because a colleague of mine who is utterly brilliant Angelique Tran Van Sang um, she stepped in to do a round of editing a number of rounds of editing with with Rennie okay so it was great so yeah. we worked together and going on to another uh, Margaret Margaret Atwood again um, that you've worked with 
this must be an incredibly exciting time to work with a Margaret Atwood because of everything that's well, actually, we well, we don't really work with her okay. that much anymore. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, it's quite quite complicated. Right. Okay. Not the case. <laughs> so, when did you stop working with her? Well, I my, it, Alexandra Pringle works with her. Right. Um, but she has other projects mm. with other houses. Okay. Um, traditionally, we've always been her her hardback publisher, and Barabo right, right. publishes her paperbacks. Okay. Which is a kind of um, it's a sort of old fashioned way of doing things, but that still remains. Well, the, I was going to talk about feminism with Margaret Atwood, but I think that's relevant as well with the new title you bought the rights to consent in, in February. Is that right? So um, that is going to be published next year, is it? I hope so. Yeah. So Laurie Penny, we published for a while. I think, I hope people know of her. She's journalist. Yeah, she's a journalist and wonderful essayist. And she's been writing for a long time. Uh, online and in the New Statesman and various places about gender and politics and she's a fierce and brilliant critic and she's writing her first long form book which I'm very excited about because she's only written essay collections in the past and this is a big moment for her and is it also a big moment for Bloomsbury in terms of you've described it I think there's a quote um in a previous interview where you said it's going to be quite a radical book and it's going to be about well, everything that's been kind of bubbling to the surface in the last year with the Me Too movement and... Well, yes. Everything Laurie writes is radical and uncompromising. But she has this ability, again, I think, in a way, like Rennie, to condense quite big ideas into ways that people can understand and make it accessible. Um... And there are new ideas in this too. You know, things, you know, she's, she, it's interesting with, with Laurie, she's been writing for such a long time about these issues that I think now is her time. Yeah. You know, everyone, I think everyone you speak to who works in publishing will probably have a book about feminism on their list or if not several. But I think for Laurie, she's, she's really well placed to, to speak to so many people because people already turn to her work for kind of guiding light about how to navigate these complicated issues and issues of theory you know also going back to theory you know she 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 can condense quite difficult theory and make it easy to understand as well as be funny and frank and um uh, personal this is this is her most personal book and how important is it for you as an editor to be working on these books that change you know national conversations in this way you've been working on a few you know, actually, seventy percent of my list is fiction, mm. so the non-fiction side of things is uh, is a bit of a surprise and a welcome surprise. But I think everyone wants to g- goes into to this industry to make to to change conversations. What a privilege, you know? Mm. What an amazing and it's a responsibility. I do feel that actually, as editors, we do have a responsibility to to challenge and to to to, to bring new voices to the table and new ideas to the table. Um, whether that be fiction or non-fiction but I think it's easier with non-fiction so it's it's important and it's exciting and it's uh, it's humbling So as Senior Commissioning Editor how long have you been Senior Commissioning Editor now? I think a couple of years And can you just describe a typical day if there is one? A typical day well I get in after dropping my kid off nursery and I don't check my email straight away because then you get sucked into a rabbit warren of hell Yeah. so I tend to sit with my coffee and make a lot of lists about what I need to, to do for, the, for, the, for that day and then I'll be in a mixture of sort of meetings I'm usually in meetings most of the day to be honest about proposals and well no the meetings are usually so the so there's the, the job really can break it down to three three aspects there's the there's the acquiring there's the there's the acquiring side so reading submissions finding new talent um acquiring talking to agents making offers making deals the second side is editing so spending time you know doing the structural editing doing uh, having long conversations about character and plot with authors and talking to them about what they want to do next and and then there's the publishing side, which is, okay, so we've got this wonderful talent, we've got this wonderful book. This is what it's doing that's different. How can we, 
how can we galvanize the rest of the team so talking to sales and marketing and publicity and and you know rights and you know who, who's the best place to who's who are the best journalists to, to to get to interview this person or what events can we do or um you know how can we pitch this what's the cover going to look like so there's that side of things so the meetings are about one or one mm. or all of these aspects of the, the job I can imagine the editing process is the bit where you need to kind of full concentration in particular and you need to be somewhere quiet and not tired and do you find that actually you're doing a lot of the editing you're taking it home or it, it must be hard mm. to do that when you've got emails coming in and meeting I mean personally as a journalist I always had to do my long form at home mm. because you just it's you a did. different type of work yeah, and actually, that's something that's on my mind a lot because now I have a I have a, a kid, so I can't do as much of the, of, of the um, the heavy lifting from home at the weekends. Absolutely, I mean, most editors do do their editing at home or they're reading at home in the evenings and at the weekend. I'm lucky in that I can take half a day a day to work at home most weeks if I need to. Do you have a cafe that you like to go and read in? Or? I don't really like working in cafes. No. no, I've never liked working in cafes. I think I, I love looking at people in cafes and looking at their shoes and looking at what they're reading <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, and drinking coffee. I don't, if I'm editing, I like to be at a desk, mm. business, you know, mascara on. I want to be penned down yeah. and not disturbed. How do you find that on a personal level, juggling, looking after your young child and having to do so much work from home? And you have to become tough on yourself, and you have to. I think you have to. You have to become become a lot more uh, focused. But also, I do think in general that editing isn't respected. In that, it it takes an enormous amount of time and energy. But you are expected to do that outside of office hours, and I, I, I don't think that's acceptable. Really, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's you know it's something you love doing, and so. Well, it's a craft and it's yeah. a skill, and it's something I've worked a lot of years yeah. to, to to get good at, and so I don't really, I think it needs to be respected. So, you know, if was, if I was a freelancer, I'd get paid a lot of money for doing that editorial work. Um, so it's it's worth something. It has value, and therefore it, you know one needs to create time for it and space for it. And so sometimes you have to have difficult conversations and say, well, you know, I need to edit this book. It's important, obviously. So I need I can't I can't attend that meeting today. Or so you just have to be look at your schedule and make sure that everything you're doing is there for a reason and not just not just because it's convention or because. So you you do have to make some some tough decisions. Um, but it's quite liberating. Mm. Well, it's reassuring. It's good. You must be a very good boss because you must be able to respect people that work for you in their time and their personal time as well. And also, I must add that uh, there is we are in a busy publishing house and there's lots of lots of noises and meetings going on outside. So sorry for all the the noise. Oh, so I don't. You know, I don't even notice it. Oh, yeah, I'm so <laughs> you're so hyper aware. Yeah, we are. There's lo- there's people outside the door. Lovely. Yeah. Where's well, it's, it's Feels very fun and lively. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It is. It is fun and lively. It, it, we, I, what I love about working here is it, it's always felt like a family. Yeah. You know, we argue and and it feels like a home. house. Your office actually feels like it could be a room mm. in a house. Yeah, exactly. I, I I do think that's a really important thing. Yeah. There are so many publishing houses that are open plan and and very corporate, mm. and and that's fine. And I've actually never worked in that environment, so I can't really say, but. I sit here from other other editors that it's quite difficult to, to, to get things done, particularly editing. But here, it's a beautiful townhouse on a, on a square. It feels very publishing, and it, and it does feel like a house. Are you allowed in the beautiful gardens in the middle? Oh, do you know what? There's one key for the entire company that oh, you can God. get. But we can go in. It's yeah. just whether you can negotiate Maybe the, the key Maybe it should be like scenario. your office crying room, you know, where you can go in and <laughs> take your time out. The crying room. I have to say that rem- that makes me think of when I first started as an editorial assistant here. When I just was crying in the loos all the time because it was too too too. That's intense. what upsets me about unisex toilets is that you do need that crying cubicle. Maybe they should in corporate spaces. They should have a crying room. Well, they do. A lot of companies do have crying rooms or <laughs> pods that you go in. Yeah. 
Oh my god. Take time out. Well, anyway, um, back to the what you were saying about your personal life. One, as I mentioned earlier, one thing we always talk about on the podcast is making ends meet and the financial difficulties of the creative industries. How has it been for you supporting a family and working in publishing, which you know we know isn't particularly well paid? Um, well. <clears throat> It's, it's, it's always a difficult thing. Uh, I'm really lucky in that my husband is a musician and a composer and so he's freelance and is around. Right. So he takes a lot of the heavy lifting in the childcare. Did he take paternity? Well, I suppose he didn't need he to didn't, take paternity because I he mean, was freelance. No, I mean, he just didn't work yeah. for, for quite a long time. Um, but that's been amazing. That's been essential, really. I, I, I do think it's hard for, for mums, mm. of which there are many, because it's not just, you know, it's not a nine to five job. You're going to events in the evening. You're going to festivals and the weekends, and you're, you know, reading. And it's and it's and it's difficult to really commit yourself to the job and commit yourself to your family. And that's something that you could have a whole series of podcasts about. I'm sure there are a series mm. of podcasts about it. But it's hard, and it, but but you know, I'm I'm paid pretty well for what I do um, in the scheme of things right now. There have been times, I mean, when I was working at Canongate, for example, I was still working in the pub. So my typical day when I was working at Canongate would be uh, get to work at 9, leave at 5.30, be at the pub at 6. And I was working at the pub 6 till 12. And then I'd probably go to Soho and get a bit drunk. (laughs) You know, I had to because I didn't, I wasn't earning enough to, um, to pay my rent. And I didn't have anyone to pay my rent for me or I didn't have someone to stay with. So I was, I was doing two jobs for, for a bit, uh, which is actually one of the reasons why I moved to Bloomsbury because the pay was a bit better. God, that sounds exhausting. It's funny, isn't it? Because you th- I think back now and I think, how on earth did I do that? That was nuts. Then I, then I go to Soho and get drunk afterwards. Millennials just aren't the same. <laughs> There's no way I could ever have done that. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's... That, yeah, I, and I think it's still an issue now where, you know, people do certain backgrounds have to have these two jobs I think I think the one thing that publishing could get better at is defining roles especially editorial roles a lot more carefully okay because I and and actually it's something that's come up just by talking to you is you know I've been in the same company and my roles sort of shifted over the years um but in quite an organic way and you take on certain new projects and you lose certain responsibilities but but actually, it does. It's not that helpful. I think. I, th- I think it's. It's very useful to have a clear, a clear job description, and a clear progression. And so that's if you the don't thing. Have a clear job description. It's very hard to argue for a clear promotion. And I think understanding your role content yeah. is yeah. really important, and it's very diff- and, it, and because you're spinning so many plates with all the different projects that you're taking on, and for assistants who they work so hard, they're not only spinning the plates for all the different books, but they're also, you know, trying to manage your diaries and you know your schedules and and so it's your your brain is in a thousand different pieces do you work um, seven days a week in terms of at home or? um no i don't work seven days a week i work probably six days a week and then i i definitely spend saturday with my family it's still a lot though as a young mother that's a lot, a lot, a lot to work it depends on your definition of work yeah. i mean i wake up in the middle of the night and think oh my god i need to get you know, a copy of David Cheriandi's new novel to this person, or I think, you know, why did why did I have that conversation with that agent? That was so stupid of me. Or you know, mm. so it, it, um, you know, so that is work in a way. Um, but often I'll get up early and you know read a proposal on a Sunday, or you know. But that's the that that is the job, unfortunately. How many proposals and manuscripts are you reading daily? Obviously well, not in time manuscripts, but yeah, I, I, you know, actually it, it varies, but I'd say on average I get about seven to ten submissions a week, and they could be fiction or non-fiction. Non-fiction's a little easier because they're proposals, and you also, you know, if you if someone said, oh, you know, here's a here's a book by a young feminist writing about consent, I'd say, well, actually, you know, I've actually I'm publishing, I'm publishing that, so I I I, I don't want to compete with myself, so mm, uh, right. you know, I I'll turn it down. So it's easier with fiction it's a little harder because you, I feel like I have to read a lot more of the work um, and engage with that voice 
a bit more and so I'm hopelessly behind on my fiction submissions and as you can get wrapped up in a fiction manuscript in a way in that you can't put it down in a way that maybe you don't get so much with non-fiction yeah possibly possibly I do th- I think I think after about I don't know 50 pages you can you should really be able to tell I mean some people some editors say they know from the first sentence or the first really? paragraph I mean maybe I'll develop I'll, I'll develop that yeah well you just have to remember I think one of the things that you've got to you've got to remember is that it's it's you have to love it you have to believe in that author and you have to want to shout about that author to everyone you meet and if you're not feeling that then you're not the right editor for that person you're not the right champion for that person and and so you know give yourself a break if you turn down Eleanor Oliphant which I did <gasps> I then yeah well you know How it wasn't you? for me really it just wasn't for me so yeah some people really didn't don't get into it and and mm. terrible business decision but it's that kind of business yeah that's been in the top charts for ages, oh yeah it? okay rub it in sorry <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry it's hard yeah but I, I do think actually one of the things that Alexandra Pringle has always said is you know and I is that you particularly for fiction you, if you're publishing into a market um, you can do that for certain things you absolutely I think you can but you'd have to speak to a, somebody who works in genre publishing you know fiction genre publishing to to, um, to get some insight into it but it, you often find yourself treading you know, if you're publishing to make money, then you're you're in the wrong game. You know, I mean, oh, and obviously we want to make money, but if you're publishing because you think it's going to sell loads and loads and loads of copies, and it's that's only part of it as well, I suppose. People it's messy. It's unpredictable. It's difficult. You never know what's going to work. You can hope. You can hope. All you you have that hope and you have that faith in that writer. And you can definitely, you know, there are absolutely things you could, you know, there's a there's a trend for uplit or there's a trend for this, there's a trend for that. But ultimately, what I want to do, and I think what makes the, the, you know, what makes publishing exciting is publishing outside and finding your own trend, you know, finding something that that slips in between those genres that is doing something different. How, how much do you see Bloomsbury as a brand, which in which every title feeds into, and you have to be consistent, as you said with the Eleanor Oliphant book, it wasn't for you. Were you thinking in terms of just personal taste or it didn't fit with the whole brand that you were that you're cultivating well, that's a really here. good question and I think I think I think what Bloomsbury represents ultimately is quality and that can mean anything it doesn't I mean I absolutely don't believe that you know more commercial books are not quality I think that's rubbish and, and, and I and I and we are going to be doing more commercial books in in the future for sure and we have a wonderful new imprint, Raven Books, which publishes absolutely astonishingly brilliant crime thriller and suspense. So, you know, but but I, but um, but I think for you, you, you have to if you're if you're working in literary fiction, you need to love it. You need to love that voice. And I, I, I at the time when actually that book came around, there weren't that many editors here. Um, that we we people had left and we hadn't hired anyone new so I think and what we do now is we if a book like that came in and I didn't love it I'd say who else wants to have a look at it right and that's what's great about working in a small team are there any other books that you've turned down that you regret sorry to, to make you think about your regrets yeah, that's a, I mean I would ask exactly the same question if I was you uh, there, are, there are so Daisy Johnson's Fen oh yeah came in to me and I loved it oh, we just interviewed her actually oh. yeah she's lovely I loved it, yeah. but I got scared by the short story thing. Yeah, so when she was talking, it's a hard. She was saying it's a hard genre to. Yeah, sell. well, it's just yeah. Even the ones that get really good press. I mean, Fen got lots of great press and didn't sell a, you know a huge amount of copies. Did well, did all right for short stories, but mm. it's you know. But I I I really loved it, and I, actually, I took it. I think I took it to the editorial meeting, and we sort of thought, well, you know, we've got a couple of short story collections already, and we should focus on that, which is all very good business decision. But I, I loved it. Have <laughs> you read should... her, everything under? Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. Have you read a lot of the the Mambuka shortlist? Um, I read Rachel Kushner. Um, I haven't read The Milkman yet. No. I'm desperate to read it. It's on my bedside table. Um, I, uh, I read a little bit of. 
the overstory, but I couldn't get into it. Sorry, I shouldn't say that really. A lot of people have said that about a lot of the shortlists. Mm. It's hard going. Uh, I mean, the shortlist, I love the Sally Rooney, which. Mm, oh you know. gosh, yeah. Um, it was a good list. It was different. It was fresh. It was young. It was exciting. And it was. Do yeah. you buy into the Man Booker as a prize? I mean, is that something you still think is necessary and important? Yeah. Just because it's had a lot of debate around it in terms mm. of you know what people want from it, and I love I love the Booker. I think it's a really wonderful moment in the publishing cal- calendar. Mm. When well, I was here, when Howard Jacobson won for us and George Saunders, and it makes a huge difference to a publisher and to a writer to have that kind of accolade, and it's internationally renowned. I do I agree with the fact that U.S. authors can be part of it? No. I don't, and there are plenty of people that can, mm. you know, I, I don't want to go into that now. But um, I, I, I love the prize. And to wrap up, um, this may seem slightly arbitrary because I know it's far more complex than this, but with young or older writers um, hoping to send a submission to you, or what would you say were some of the kind of do's and don'ts for a mm. perfect proposal? And so some things that just immediately put you off or get your attention well I'm quite fortunate position that most of the submissions I get come from agents okay so I don't tend to get submissions direct from authors in fact it's very rare do some people still manage to get your email and directly send them yeah but um depending on the person I'll I'll often just say you know it's probably better for you to get an agent at this stage can help you develop your idea and, and give it the best possible chance um so so the, yeah there, i think i think a lot of the time you know publishers have certain agents that they share taste with and so when that agent sends them something else that you'll read it straight away um but saying that i get submissions from people i don't know all the time and often i'll i'll take them forward so it it, it really does depend on on a lot of different things what you've got in your list currently what you uh, what you're interested in you know what you feel you know it might be that you know you've got lots of uh debut literary novels already and you you don't as I said, you don't want to compete with yourself so you you're looking for a sort of, you know more commercial smart smart literary more commercial book for your list so it, it it's quite it's quite it's quite difficult i think for agents and therefore authors to know who's going to get the book and, and often it isn't that the book isn't good you know it's not that the book isn't 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 worth something I think that's the thing I really try and make clear when I talk to talk to writers it's it's not that you don't have something to offer it's that it might not be the right time for me right now or I'm not the right editor for you at this particular point and if they're not established if it's a debut if then if they don't have a name um I actually well, I, I know that it's easier in some ways to launch a debut. Okay. Because yes. if this is the new shiny the thing. The follow-up is always harder. The follow-up's harder. Mm. Mm. And I, and I, another thing I, I very much value about being here is that we've, you know, from the top, there's always been a, um, you know, a, there's always, there's always been that sense that we want to follow writers through their careers. Carmen Shamsi published many of her books before, or Burnt Shadows, which was shortlisted for the Orange, and then Home Fire, which won the Women's Prize this year. George Saunders, we published his short stories for years, which then they didn't really sell that much. Um, there's plenty of examples I can give you. David Park, Northern Irish writer, um, who is now for the fourth time on the Irish Book of the Year shortlist? He's an amazing writer, and I think that I mean I, I I think that's the case with Anna Burns, from what I remember hearing um, from Louisa Joyner and Faber. Um, that that it's it, it's it's wonderful publishing the debuts because from a publicity and marketing point of view, it's easier. But there's something very very rewarding about building up that relationship with a writer and helping them develop their career and that's really what I love to do. I can imagine. Uh, Alexa, final question, what are you reading at the moment? Oh goodness. That you're allowed to say. 
I'm reading about 20 submissions. Is there anything that you're reading for your personal enjoyment? Um, <laughs> um, I know it's all enjoyment, but... It is enjoyment. What did I dip into the other day? Um, Rebecca Solnit's new book. I think she's astonishing. So I love reading her. Uh, I'm reading quite a lot of non-fiction at the moment. Um, essays. Okay. Um, Which essays? Well, Rebecca Solnit. Yeah. And then um, I dipped into some of Leslie Jameson's early essays recently. Um, uh, I Well, it's not really an essay, but I loved um, um, uh, the book about Michael Jackson. The, the author's name is escaping me now. She's brilliant. Oh, my God. Um, I can't remember her name. American writer. Okay. I can't. I can't help you there either. But, but okay. yeah, lo- there's lots, of, <laughs> lots of different things that I, you know, dip into. I, um, I was reading some of Don Patterson's poetry the other day. Sometimes I think that what we're getting here is that anything that I can read very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> because poems, poems and, and short essays, and I, I love, I love a podcast at the moment as well. So I do a lot what of that. What are you listening to at the moment, other than always take notes, of course? Obviously, always take notes. Dear Sugars, do you know that podcast? The New York, is it the yeah, New York Times sex podcast? Uh, it's not sex, it's Lungs. not sex. I've, it's on I, my library and I've never listened yeah. to it. Um, is it New York it's, Times? It's for, it's for this, what do they say, for the lost, lonely and heartsick. Ah. It's wonderful. It's Cheryl Strayed and Steve Armand and it's... Americans being incredibly emotionally articulate about all sorts of things, from motherhood to sex to... to loneliness to all sorts of things but it's they're wonderful they're really wonderful 45 minute little wow, snippets they have Oprah on it they had Hillary Clinton on Esther Perel, Esther Perel was on who being utterly amazing um so I'd recommend that I think that's wonderful but there's a lot that you know there's 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 so many brilliant podcasts out there yes yeah another form of cultural homework that mm-hmm. we all have to see yeah, through. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, Alexa, thank you very much for having me in your charming office at Bloomsbury Publishing. It's, it's been a pleasure. It's a pleasure, thank you. So, Simon, what did you think of my conversation with Alexa? I thought it was really good. I listened to it um, while I was striding through Spain. More, <laughs> more, more of that in a moment. Um, I thought it, yeah, always interesting to hear book editors and their, their different experiences. I mean, clearly she's been involved in this this huge hit with uh, the Renato Lodge book um, and also had an interesting take on her kind of beginnings and how it started with a conversation in a pub, right? Yeah. With a, with a guy in publishing. And you touched as well on how her her rise to power was pretty, pretty rapid, that within seven years or so she went from being a self-described dog's body to having this, this big job. Yeah. So again, I think a really her interesting... Business, number of business cards must be... Formidable. Yeah, Formidable. like eight different titles. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting her perspective as a white woman editing a black woman, I was, in this, especially in this kind of PC world, which is also a, a good thing. It must be quite daunting. Having yeah, that kind of. Well, I think I think broadly the the writer editor interaction, you know, is uh, famously a potentially complicated relationship. She mentioned that issue when she wrote cover prose for Margaret mm-hmm. Atwood that she didn't like. But again, I think um, a very interesting insight into uh, another corner of the literary world. Anyway, what have you been up to since the last episode? So I have started my role uh, as commissioning editor at The Telegraph uh, about, this is my third week, um, which has been, it's been great. You kind of feel within a month that you've been working here forever. I think uh, culture journalists are always very good at putting you at ease. It's, I mean, it's, it's what you know. We should it? say that we're, we're deep in Telegraph Towers at the moment and there is a children's choir outside the window you yeah. may be able to hear it's very nice um, I am myself well I've been off in Spain and walked the Camino de Santiago which was my post book retreat which uh, did the trick I think so how many days were you trekking? Uh, I trekked for 32 days uh, and five five days off so and you said your feet have now become the site of interest the, the site of scientific interest scientific well they interest. were yeah they were 
Well, they were fine, actually. I looked after them pretty carefully, but they'd been repaired by a, a, a podologo, yeah. a podiatrist in Santiago. <laughs> anyway, um, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Acom. And me, Eleanor Halls. Our producer is Nicola Keane. Our social media is handled by Zara Hankir, and our score is by Jess Danheiser. Um, we're also on all manner of social media. We're on Always Take Notes on Facebook or Take Notes Always Twitter. Uh, and you can also rate and review the episode if you enjoyed it on iTunes. And if you feel like contributing to our Patreon account, that's uh, Always Take Notes on Patreon as well. Uh, many thanks indeed and goodbye. Thank you.